Now we start a new unit of Colossians 1, 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Having heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. I'm going to stop there. It is remarkable that we always thank God when we pray for you. And then he tells all these reasons for his thanksgiving, which are really a lot more than reasons for thanksgiving. They are also instructions, teachings, like you have love, the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. We're going to talk about that in the next few sessions. That's a huge teaching. He's not just giving random lists of reasons for why he thanks God. Here's the implication of that. Every time we open our mouth to teach anything about God, let us do it with the banner of thanksgiving waving over it, which is another way of saying, let us teach the Word of God, the truth of God, the doctrines about God worshipfully. Let it never be abstract or distance from our hearts or our affections. So that's my first observation. We thank God when we pray for you, and then not just giving reasons for thanksgiving, but also rich teachings which then fly under the banner of thanksgiving. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So let's just pause and do that. I pray for the folks that are watching this and for myself right now, that as we talk about the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, his lordship and the fatherhood of God over him would come to us with a fresh clarity and profound transforming effectiveness in our lives for the for the glory of Christ and the good of his church. I pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he just said. In the previous verse, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, right? Our Father. And the very next thing he says is, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus. So you could put God here like this, and you could imagine, okay, we are sons and Jesus is another another son of God. And there we are, on the same level. <laughs> That's not a good idea. And there are several clues in the immediate and nearby context why that's a very bad way to draw it. The first is Lord. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
to put him on the same level with us, we're sons, he's a son, would overlook the lordship of Jesus Christ. Look down at verse 19 of chapter 1. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. A few verses later, chapter 2, verse 9. In him the whole fullness of deity, godness, dwells bodily. Oh my, my, my. (laughs) No, no, let's not do that. Let's rather say, He is a, or let's not say a, the Son of God in a wholly different way than we are sons of God. It is a glorious thing that we are sons and that He is the Son. But the word Lord and the fullness of God and the fullness of deity shows this sonship is unique. It is a godness. This is God giving rise eternally to a son who is fully God. So we're warned not to construe the fatherhood of God over Jesus and the fatherhood of God over us in the same sense. So question, why then does Paul risk calling Jesus the Son of God or calling God the Father of our Lord Jesus? And I would say, well, let's look at the implications. If God is the Father of the Lord Jesus in a unique way, different from his being our Father, then Jesus is the Son, which carries what implications? Let's just look at a few. Romans 5.10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We owe our reconciliation to God so that he's not our enemy and can be our father to the death of his son. Or Romans 8.3, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son, sending from heaven to earth his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He's not sinful, but he became man, and thus is like sinful flesh, one of us, but without sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh. So God sends his own eternal son so that he might condemn sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? His own. Whose sin? He had none. Ours. This is substitutionary atonement. This is penal substitution. That is, he bears the penalty of our condemnation, calling God the Father of Jesus, calls all of this glorious redemption to mind. Here it is again in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, his own son, he's unique. We're not that. 
Only Jesus is that. He gave him up for us all. How shall he not with him graciously give us all things? We owe everything graciously given to us to the fact that the Father did not spare his one and only Son. One more text. God is faithful, 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the uniqueness of the sonship of Jesus provides the very essence of the salvation he has wrought, namely, he dies for us to become our Lord and to bring us into eternal, joyful, satisfied fellowship with God through his Son. So now, let's read this again. We always thank God for you. And he inserts who God is because everything good that ever comes to you and all that God has wrought in you, in us Christians, is owing to this. He is the Father. God is the Father. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means Jesus Christ is the unique, one and only, divine, eternal Son of God, who being sent into the world, purchased everything good in this letter that we're going to read about that comes to us.